What's going on guys? It's Paul and welcome to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown. I am, well, your host, Combat Veteran, MMA fighter, and YouTuber, Paul. And today, I don't have a guest, though obviously, um, I think 2022 is going to be the year of the guest for this podcast. That is my goal anyway. Um, also, my goal is to get an episode out every single uh, every single week. Uh, ideally every single Sunday-ish, obviously, it is now Monday, so, you know, Sunday-ish, right? But what I did want to do is share uh, what I think is much requested, in fact, and sort of my own version of a campfire-style story. Obviously, I am not the storyteller uh, that uh, last week's guest, Zach Hazard, is, um, but everyone loves a good military story, and I have more than a couple of goofy ones. So, for context, right, when you are in Afghanistan, or when I was in Afghanistan, this was in 2010-2011, they, the mission was always, always, always joint, right? It was, whether you were a Tier 1 Special Operations Unit, or you were a, you know, a military police platoon who had been thrust into uh, being battle space owners, uh, you were expected to be partnered with the Afghan forces. That was the idea, was that that would build them up, um, give them training and legitimacy, and teach them more about how to be legitimate police forces. Now, I know what you're thinking. Military police aren't considered legitimate police forces in the United States. How could you possibly teach the Afghans how to legitimately be police? And that's a great question. And it, it was not clearly addressed by the U.S. forces, right? Um, and just because you are a police in, say, a large military base, for example, uh, my platoon, we, when we came back from Afghanistan, we were rotated almost immediately onto law enforcement duty. And our base, Fort Riley, has 50,000 people working and living on the base. So a small city and certainly had a small city's worth of law enforcement problems and calls and issues, everything you can think of that a city of that size would have. So, you know, as MPs, we were probably uniquely qualified to actually show a police force how to do their job, but certainly things like partnering with uh, the local government. Uh, I don't know how, a, uh, you know, it, it, the Afghan version of Park, Parks and Rec, right? was basically what we were trying to do. Do all the sort of routine things that we expect our local government to do. Fill a pothole, uh, issue a zoning permit, um, get my neighbor to tow their junk cars out of the yard, right? All that sort of stuff. So needless to say, 23-year-old uh, Paul was in a little bit over his head, right? I couldn't even have told you where the local, local, um, where my local, like, you know, county government headquarters was in the United States, let alone in Afghanistan. Anyway, to understand this, we were on a joint patrol with the Afghan, um, it was the Afghan police and Afghan army. The Afghan army unit we were partnered with was actually very good. They were very professional. Um, they had spent a long time in Konar province, one of the most dangerous places on the eastern part of the country. And so I think by just sheer process of elimination, they ended up with a very dedicated group of soldiers and an excellent set of commanders. The police, however, were, they weren't bad, 
right? They weren't like actively corrupt. They just weren't particularly interested in working that hard. And they just didn't have the same sort of professionalism or military bearing. Anyway, but what they did have was U.S. provided Humvees. So the way we generally traveled in these convoys was that the Afghan vehicles would be in between the U.S. vehicles. The U.S. vehicles were larger, provided better protection, and it was a really easy way to make sure that you always had a local presence and that the Afghans were able to get some, some security right from being near the U.S. vehicles. So we are driving along through this patrol and we're in a fairly prominent like river valley. In fact, I think I can actually pull it up here on the map if I just click around just a little bit, right? But it's a, you know, it's Afghanistan. So it's, as you can imagine, extremely mountainous and extremely, uh, let's even get it. Oh, here we go. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's pull that up. Yeah, so let me do this. Nope. Okay. So there's this valley we were in, and it's right around here. Yep. Right at the Afghan Pakistan border. Yeah. Yep. And there's Barakal. Yeah. So here it is right here. You can see it's actually says it's a river that runs through this valley. You go south past the high school, and here is the mouth of the valley and we patrolled all down here. I mean, you can see the elevation change that's happening here. You're looking at an 1800 meter mountaintop and the river valley, which was is just, you know, about 2000 feet away is maybe a thousand meters. So a very, very steep hillside, steep mountainsides, as you sort of try to navigate through this, this uh, dry riverbed. Right, and we pushed as far down as we could go, actually, all the way as close as we could get to the uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan border without, you know, violating U.S. treaty obligations. Very, all, these are always nerve-wracking missions because, as you can imagine, these mountainous border regions are some of the most dangerous in the entire country, right? So everyone was extremely on edge. We didn't make any contact with any enemy, and we were able to work our way back out. Uh, obviously, coming back out is very dangerous because once you go in, there is one way out. And it's this mouth of the valley. So we go in and we're weaving our way out and we finally leave the mouth of the valley, right? And you can actually see it right here on the map. You come out and here's an Afghan border police station. And that border police station generally denotes the spot where, you know, the, the likelihood of a Taliban attack is very low. You can see the station literally looks into this valley and provides coverage so any taliban forces that wanted to leave the valley wouldn't be able to do so in any significant number so we make it past the border patrol station it's darkness has kind of fallen and the vehicles are driving along we still have another 45 50 minutes to our uh our fob our main base right all the way up here in it's actually labeled the ganikel bazaar now so we start working our way up and we pass the police checkpoint and then we start slowing down like a lot and soon we our convoy is going like five miles an hour and i at this point i'm in the 
like middle vehicle because that because I want to be able to see both my front and rear elements. And so I radio up ahead to my first squad leader who's in the lead vehicle, and I I say, well, what, what what's going on? And he goes, I don't know. The lead vehicle is actually uh, an Afghan Humvee. And I go, okay, so, and he's like, yeah, and they're going like five miles an hour. So I'm like, okay, let's, let's just give them a little bit, see if they, you know, put the pedal to the metal. Well, 10 minutes goes by, they don't. They're still moving in a crawl. Now, squad leader radios me. He's like, hey, there's actually smoke coming out of their vehicle. And I'm like, okay, this may not be a good thing. I say, okay, we're going to stop. We're going to get out and we're going to go see what's going on with this vehicle. So we stop the convoy, we get out, I walk all the way to the front of the convoy, just meet the squad leader, we go up to this Afghan vehicle, and sure enough, it is pouring smoke, but it is not pouring smoke out of the engine. The smoke is coming through the turret in the center of the vehicle. And we're like, this is bizarre. Is there an electrical fire, like, inside? Like, like again, think, the engine of your vehicle is under the hood, right? That's where the smoke would come out. So we walk up to this vehicle, and wrap on the window, and they, we see the window kind of crack down a couple of inches, and another billow of smoke comes out to us. And now we can smell it. And it smells like weed. And we look through, the eyes staring at us, are totally bloodshot and we're like get the interpreter here so we have the interpreter come out and we tell the turp we're like ask them what the what the what the hell are they doing and the interpreter talks to them and they answer and the interpreter looks confused and he at, talks to them more and then he finally turns to us and he goes comandante they have been smoking weed in the vehicle. They've been hotboxing. And everyone in this vehicle is so high that the driver does not feel safe driving more than five miles an hour. And I'm just like, oh my god. You guys, they must have lit up as soon as they passed the border police checkpoint. And obviously, locked inside a Humvee uh, with the windows up, they were completely and totally smoked out. And we're still somehow driving, though, five miles an hour. So we ended up having to get another Afghan vehicle and move, getting them a new driver and explaining to them that they could not smoke weed until they were back at the police station. But these are the sort of compromises that you have to make when dealing with another very, very different culture. And, you know, I, I, kidding aside, right, it's one of the things I think was so good about being in Afghanistan and about that sort of experience is that you realize that you just got to meet people where they are first. And second, like motivation trumps skill in so many situations. And I think about with the Afghans, right? Here, it, it was like pulling teeth to get the police to leave the police station, to do anything, to talk to anyone. Same with the Afghan border police, right? They just wanted to sit in their base and collect a paycheck and screw around. And 
in contrast, right, their countrymen, the Taliban, we couldn't stop them from going out, planning operations, always learning, they're always innovating, new tactics, new techniques, new technical ways to build IEDs, new ambushes, new ways to, to target uh, uh, their enemies, right? The level of innovation and energy that the Taliban brought, despite having no state support, right? No formal training. And in con when you contrasted it with the Afghan security forces, those that did show up, because remember, I've talked about this in other videos, that, that the, for every one Afghan police officer that actually showed up, there were usually between six and ten who were on a roster and who received paychecks. But they, what they would do is the police would give 50% of their paychecks to their police chief who would mark them present. And then the police chief would take his cut the police officer would take their cut and they never showed up to actually do the job, right? They just sort of enjoyed taking taxpayer money, right? And no showing. And it sort of makes sense, right? If you can get paid like you're risking your life to fight the Taliban while not actually having to risk your life without the Taliban, you should probably do that, right? Would you do your job for half your salary if you could take no risk and spend that time doing another job? Of course you would. Not of course you would. I assume you have a level of integrity, uh, dear viewer, <laughs> dear listener. Um, but this is sort of the endemic problem, right? Is just that at the end of the day, there's not a lot of motivation to go to bat and work for someone else, to, to serve someone else's objectives on your country. Right. And the U.S. did a sort of a terrible job of uh, of so much in Afghanistan. But I think one of the things that they failed at was winning the cultural battle. Right. The U.S. has the U.S. Army has an entire division of psychological operations whose only job it is is to change people's perception of uh, what's going on around them. And they failed so, so badly because most people most Afghans really believed that the U.S.-backed government was corrupt, fraudulent, and basically just a scheme to extract money from the United States, just like the Soviet government was basically a scheme to extract money from the Soviet government, right? This playbook was, was completely set. And when you have that universal perception of the government as being illegitimate, then who is going to work hard for that government? What does it even represent other than kleptocracy? What you want instead is a government and where the U.S. failed was to communicate and message the ideals behind the government. The idea that the government was elected by the people and it represented them in a concrete way and that the government in Kabul was embodying this idea of universal rights for Afghans and a, 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 this idea of a secular democracy that everyone from different sects could work together and have a vested interest in the country. And the thing that the U.S. failed at pretty horribly is reading their own history. Because the United States, right, we, we, 
the school child myth that we tell people about the country is that, you know, we were uh, under the boot of a tyrannical king, and then we threw them off and we invented our own self-government. But the truth is, is that for the first, you know, 100 years of the colony's existence, they were self-governing because the crown was too lazy to impose any meaningful government, right? They, it, the crown had many other problems than to deal with some small, economically not very productive colonies. So the colonies, over a span of, again, 100 plus years, evolved things like state legislatures and state houses and figured out all these mechanisms of self-governance. Uh, each state kind of came to the conclusions and fits and starts and they solved their problems differently and it was it was not clean right again it was a hundred plus year process to even settle on anything that constituted a government but it meant that after the american revolution the the legislative and governing systems that most americans encountered in their daily lives were completely intact, right? The, many of the state legislative houses in the, of the 13 original colonies predate America, right? And that's because they were still the equivalent of modern American state or county government. And the fact that Americans tend to ignore the 100 plus years where Americans themselves figured out what self-governance looked like so that by the time the American Revolution kicked off, America had every piece of the puzzle already set. And you have to remember, it, that government was uniquely tailored to their specific circumstances. It was tailored to that specific state. States had different ways of electing. They had different timelines for elections. They had different ways of vetting it, right? And each one of those is a reflection of a very uniquely, like, the, the time and place. And so this idea that you can take these principles and dump them onto the Afghans, a totally different culture, totally different set of values. Remember, the American Revolution came about during the Enlightenment era, when these ideas about philosophies about inalienable rights and, and the primacy of the individual, and, you know, obviously the execution was iffy, right? Slavery and, you know, women can't own property and, and stuff. But the, the philosophical ideas had only recently been written, right? It only recently had they ever been put to writing. And so the idea that you can take this radically different culture in a radically different value system with a radically different cult like institutions and then impose on it from outside and do it not in 120 years but do it in like three years was was the idea when we first went into afghanistan was that it would be like three or four years and that it's just going to take is the level of naivete is like astounding even for 2001 when we first showed up it, it, and it's just a testament to the fact that like that like the fact that more than one not all countries in the modern world not all developed countries in the modern world have the same democracy in fact no two countries have the same function same democracy and so to sit there and believe you can impose it on 
Afghanistan is was just such a preposterous thing. But they were sort of in a catch-22, right? You, what would you do? Impose a dictatorship? We did that in Vietnam, and it was sort of humiliating. And, you know, we supported a military dictatorship that was like a pretty horrific human rights abuser. So we couldn't do that. So, I mean, the answer is you were never going to win, right? That Things were like the U.S. sort of at the outset was never really going to come out on top in Afghanistan, right? It, it was just a question of how long they were willing to prop up a government. And the only part that, like, to me is really pretty embarrassing, and I really, I really hope the U.S. military takes a hard look at itself, is that the clunky, cumbersome, conscript, poorly trained conscript army of the Soviet Union, when they left, their government, the government they backed, still limped along for another, like, five or six years before finally collapsing. U.S. government collapsed in days. It collapsed so quickly that that the U.S. soldiers weren't even able to fully withdraw in time. They had to cut a deal with the Taliban to ensure their safety and that they could withdraw. And even then, the Taliban supposedly sat outside Kabul and tried to find someone who could make a deal that they would like not touch Kabul for a couple months while the U.S. evacuated, and they couldn't even find someone to do it. I mean, it's just a testament that, you know, Ashraf Ghani, the Afghan president, climbed into a helicopter with hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and flew off to, it's not clear, it's not clear where he went. Uh, probably to Dubai would be my guess, or, or uh, another Emirati country. And what also kills me is that even though this guy was stealing just at a scale that would water your eyes from the Afghans and also from the Americans, right? Is that his daughter, her lifestyle, she lives in New York. He's, bank, he's bankrolling her lifestyle, right? And she is like this person who calls herself an advocate for Afghan women's rights. And just the level of hypocrisy that you would have to take to look in the mirror steal wholesale from your country and live off the money and then to wake up every day and like be on social media go on interviews and talk about how you're fighting for afghan women's empowerment and it's just like why not stop stealing money for starters and so i think that's a lesson that i always take with me when i hear other ultra ultra wealthy people advocating for some cause is that oftentimes if you look scratch the surface a little bit and you can see that uh ask themselves like do their actions meet their high and self-righteous language one of my favorite examples and once you see it you can't unsee it how many celebrities show up and raise money for a cause but i want you to think when your favorite celebrity raises money for a cause, the, the, raising money means getting other people to donate. That's how raising money works. But these celebrities are multi, multi, multi-millionaires. What? What? They don't need to raise money. They don't, raising a million dollars is writing a check if you're Lady Gaga or, or Kid Rock or whoever, right? You don't need to raise, raising money is, is, is swiping your debit card when you're that wealthy. 
But like to raise money means other people donate. And they, well, they donate their time, which isn't really the same thing. But I'm also willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that they get a nice tax write-off for providing free concert service or whatever nonsense thing that they pretend has value. So, yeah, I just think that it's always good to keep a perspective of things. Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed this little little rant, um, and I hope you enjoyed this little campfire story. Uh, let me know in the comments if there are other stories, if you like this format, if you want to see me tell more stories, or if you have guests you want me to reach out to and see if they'll come on the podcast. Let me know in those comments. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.